Hello, lovely listeners. It's a warm, hot, sweltering September. Bizarre, I know. We finally got a bit of heat and warmth and sun in this country after like weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of rain and us pretending that we can do open air stuff in the rain. I did several things in the open air when it was raining. It was fine, you know, made it better. But no, we're here because, you know, even though it's hot, we want to be snuggled in somewhere nice and cool and watching horror films. That's right. Invasion of the Potty People is back. We've got myself, Russell, who'll be wrangling this this motley crew into order. Then we've also got Vincent. Vincent, who are you? Let the Potty People take you cruising in Sorcerer with Killer Joe, identifying the French connection so as to live and die in L.A. with the rules of engagement. Watch out for the Guardian of Bug and steer clear of the hunted. Hello, it's me, it's Vincent, and that's a clue to what's coming up. Mm. And there's one more part of our trio, one more. If we're like a holy trinity, we've got... Or unholy. Am I the father, am I the son? Maybe I'm the father, maybe Vincent's the son. And who's our holy spirit? Why it is... James Rodriguez, and I'm melting! Yeah, it's kind of hot. And it is, the... but nothing's hotter than our chat. We know that. <laughs> Not sure about that, but it's close. And it is apt that it is hot because we're going to be talking about, first up, Australian horror. That's right. The big horror here of the summer is Talk To Me, which yeah, is a pretty fun film. Very distinctive, very fun. Brutal, brutal violence at random points. But the creatives, as James about to tell us, are doing something else, aren't they, James? James, what are the creators going to do after the hit of Talk To Me? So, yes, if you if you went to the cinema recently, you might have seen a little-known horror film called Talk To Me. It was the feature debut from directors Danny and Michael Philippou. They're twin brothers who were previously YouTubers under the name Raka Raka. And it was, a, it was an absolute success for A24 because on a 4.5 million budget, it grossed over $60 million. So it's no surprise that there's a sequel in development. A24 announced it through a teaser video, which we used um, audio from one of the film's characters mentioning how perhaps there's another hand out there. And a nice throwaway, throwaway line, which seems to have been quite a good sequel setup. And returning to tackle this film are the directors with a script written by Danny and Bill Hins. Hinsman, who were the writers on the first film. Now, that's not surprising, but what is surprising is that a prequel film has already been completed. Yes, um, production was completed consecutively with Talk To Me to explore the backstory of Duckett, who was a character who was memorably within the film's opening. And it seems that the, the Philippus have opted to use screen life to start, tell this story through mobile phones and social media and they got plans to release it in the future so not just one but two continuations of this successful horror film and what's really interesting is that reportedly um blumhouse were originally gonna buy the rights to talk to me on the condition that a sequel was made this was turned down and a sequel's happening anyway with a24 but it's better that it happened this way because now the creatives have done it because they wanted to rather than the distributors 
saying it needs to be done. So, so yeah, I'm excited for to see where um, these brothers are going to go and what they're going to do delving further into this world which they set up effectively with this film. Um, what about you guys? Did you guys like talk to me? And did, are you interested in seeing this world explored even further? Absolutely, yes. I um, I, I found Talk to Me a very arresting um, film. It's, I think, one of the strongest uh, horror movies out in 2023. Um, and I was particularly impressed with the opening sequence that the prequel is apparently going to expand upon. Um, it was, you know, the film is is gripping. Um, it's um, compelling. It's genuinely scary. Um, and when it needed to be, it also had a nice um, line in dark wit. So it, I think, you know, spending more time in this world certainly sounds interesting. As I recall, um, the sequel is going to be called Talk to Me with a two instead of number mm. two instead of the word two. So talk number to me. Um, Got to wonder, does that mean the prequel be just talk? I guess we'll find out. Let's talk. Maybe it'll be called that. Maybe um, it's good to talk. Oh, no, 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 not that. Uh, yeah, no, I thought Talk to Me was pretty great. I particularly liked the um, sort of the first two acts world building. Like the characters are really well developed. It spends time once it has like a very uh, startling opening, it then sort of slows down and introduces interesting characters that are well acted. I thought the last act was I didn't find it as satisfying as I wanted it to. It, it sometimes happens of horrors that the first two acts are the ones that grip me and then the last act I'm like maybe not but I mean if they've got sequel plans I can kind of understand why it felt for me like it was slightly holding back um I'd gladly watch a sequel but I'm gonna watch a sequel to most of these like horrors like but yeah it's and I'm really interested in like a prequel screen life film like that is interesting to me I think screen life films are fascinating and when done well are really uh, engaging and fun and like make the horror more immediate in a way that that sometimes is hard to do but yeah no i i thought it was great i think it's good that a24 are still releasing horrors that are that are compelling and interesting but thankfully it's not like uh to cast aspersions against ariasta it's like an ariasta film which kind of winded me up <laughs> yeah no I, i'm excited to see where this goes and i think the guys should be picked up for some big franchise and see what they can do with it because I think they'd have fun with it and I think yeah. Uh, apparently on the docket they've got an adaptation of Street Fighter. <laughs> okay, I mean... There we go. I've never seen a good film based <laughs> on a beat-em-up, but there's a first everything. Mm. I will say I thought the most recent Mortal Kombat was pretty cool. It was pretty good. It worked. Okay. Um, not, I think not least because it was not afraid to take some distance from the game setup and that worked so yeah maybe there's something to be said um in that respect but you're absolutely right yeah, here they are being um potentially uh, brought in to deliver a, a new friend a big a franchise kind of reboot and yeah more power to them mm. what's quite interesting is that this is the second time a24 have released an original horror film and secretly shot a prequel to it because there was also ty west did the same for x and Pearl. and do you think this is going to be something that um that more a24 films are gonna carry off i suppose 
Well, it's I mean, it's something that they can potentially do. I mean, if if it's working on the basis of them using this, you know, largely the same cast and crew, mm. and it's uh, you know, and being done in the same locations, and therefore able to reuse a lot of it, and therefore keeping the cost down, I can certainly see it being a viable production model. The difficulty is, I think we might it might be then become something that audiences come to expect. It'll be like, we'll be seeing new horror films and be like, like, okay, fine. When's the next installment? Because obviously you would have shot it alongside. But I suppose that might be more for the discerning crowd who, you know, who actually care about who is the company behind this. Um, so I can see it. I can understand the appeal of doing things that way rather than having to do a whole other setup. The only from a more um, artistic perspective, they might run the risk of, right, okay, now you do the prequel. Um, uh, we don't have a script. Get going, go ahead, get going, get going. And then we end up with something that's, you know, very half-assed. So it's an interesting idea, but like all interesting ideas, it's got to be done right. Hmm. And yeah, like the appeal for me, like something like Pearl and X, that Pearl is a very different film to X. It's, it's, it's a very different section of horror almost at times isn't a horror until like the last like sort of act goes full whole hog horror um and i think that with what is proposed to talk to me prequel by being a screen live film it's changing the format enough so I, i'm kind of intrigued in that sense that i am all for them making the prequel or sequel at the same time but if they kind of change the format or the style or something like that i'm much more interested than in just kind of using it to kind of do two very similar films i also just looked up and i wanted to say that the dead or alive film which is another beatman film starred holly valance and i knew there was a pop star who starred in the dead or alive film and it's holly valance that does ring a bell <laughs> a future rodders reviews rubbish i feel is there waiting desperately to be talked about james oh Question. come now don't don't prejudge Question. Um, it's a video game adaptation, mid two thousands. Did Uwe Boll direct it? I don't believe he did. Let's just have a quick look. Eric he... Roberts is in it, so I mean, it's yeah. written by Corey Yun, who I don't know who that is. So, by the power of the internet, which this makes great podcasting, by the way, me doing it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That's oh, interesting. Looks things up on the internet. I think he's um quite a famous Hong Kong director. I the think... name is familiar, Corey Yun. Yeah. yeah, so what's he done? Filmography. Well, that doesn't help me. It's just a list of films. Anyway, I think he did um, yeah, some famous Hong Kong martial arts films before he did this. It's not like Uwe Boll, who is like, buys the rights before the films come out, before the games come out, and then makes something that's loosely based <laughs> on the synopsis of the game. Ugh. And then you read the synopsis of that movie on Wikipedia and like, What? I said don't prejudge, but I'm prejudging right now. <laughs> and just to follow up, Corey Yun did the first Transporter film Ooh. and a film called No Retreat, No Surrender, which if no any of you haven't seen it, strap in because it's one of it's a very entertaining bad film. Okay. It's the kind of one where a white boy gets Kung Fu lessons from the ghost of Bruce Lee to beat up. Jean-Claude Van Damme, who's a Russian enforcer, and also the ghost of Bruce Lee looks nothing like Bruce Lee. Right. Talk to me. No! Hey, hey, don't let go of me. Do not let go. Look at the car. Look at it. You don't have to look at it. You don't have to look at it. 
Although okay. you have seamlessly linked me to our next topic because I'll come back to Bruce Lee in a minute. But we are going to be talking about Fright Fest. So Fright Fest happened, I think it was two weeks ago now. It happened from the 24th to the 28th of August. So from Thursday evening to Monday evening, we all decamped. Well, I decamped the entire weekend. These chaps did a day each. We decamped to London. We went to the Sydney World in Leicester Square and we watched a lot of films. I think I watched 17 films in total across the weekend. I had more gaps than normal because, you know, I wanted to enjoy myself outside. And it was sunny at times, so, you know, warm my nice shades outside, had some drinks. But yeah, so I watched 17 films. A range of films were on show. It is predominantly a horror one, so I opened with Suitable Flesh, which is uh, Joe Lynch's uh, Lovecraftian erotic thriller that gets a bit body horrorly by the end. I had fun with that. It was, it was given the quality that opening films can have at Fright Fest. It was actually good. And it was a lot of fun. And then it closed with the seasoning game, which I didn't see. I will catch when it comes to Shudder. So my last film was The Exorcist, but more on that later. So we, I watched a ton of films and I thought I'd go through what are my top 10 of the festival. So let me just get my list up. And really, I think there's only probably, looking at my list of what I've seen, there's probably two or three, maybe four films that didn't work for me. One film I thought was utterly dreadful that I won't name here because that's not what I'm about. But yeah, for the most part, it was a lot of fun. Uh, And so I'm going to go through my top 10 that I watched across both the festival and beforehand. So some of them I watched with screeners. One of them, and when when we get to it, you'll know why. I watched both as a screener, then at the festival. That's how much I liked it. So yeah, so my top 10. First up is a film called Here for Blood, which is a sort of gory takedown of um, cult a horror and home invasion movies that played first at Fright Fest Glasgow, went down such a storm that it came back. And I can see why it is like this, like delightful romp with um, the wrestler. Hold on. What's his name? The wrestler Sean Roberts in the lead. Who's a really charismatic lead. It's very fun. It's very silly. It's quite broad, but I had a lot of fun with it. And that played on the Friday evening as the final film on their first screen. And I should remind Listeners, if you didn't listen before, there are four screens to Fright Fest. There's the main screen, which has uh, weekend and day passes, plus a handful of um, tickets for each film. Then there are three discovery screens. One is sort of about half the size of the main screen, and then two very small screens. And I'll get into how I feel about the small screens with two of our, well, three of the films I've got on here, because some of them, I think, could have been higher up on the roster. Uh, my number two, my number nine film is in fact Suitable Flesh, which is um, when it's fun, it's really fun. It's quite violent, quite silly, but it was also quite horny. And I kind of miss horny cinema. I like that there was people have sex in it and there's violence and stabbings. And then it all gets a bit um, Lovecraftian and different bodies are used. And I won't go too much into what happens in the second half, because it's quite a fun ride. But that's a Shudder release that'll come out maybe by the end of this year. I feel it'll be quite an... soon enough it'll come out. Uh, my number eight is Dr. Jekyll. And I saw Dr. Jekyll on a sort of a whim on the Friday evening. I didn't have anything that I wanted to watch 
uh, on the main screen. So this was on the Discovery One screen, and it had like a bit of a cloud of um, maybe mystique around it. Like there, there was a lot of talk of of not people not really knowing what the film was. There was a lot of um, mystery around it, and what it turned out to be was in fact a cracking Hammer horror film. So it's uh, it's Hammer, and Hammer's just being rebrought. So this is like. It was briefly lost, this film, as part of that shuffle for who owned Hammer. And then we found out at the screening, once the film ended, that, in fact, the film would be a Hammer film, that they had, they could announce that Hammer had been brought by someone else. As Eddie Izzard uh, is the lead, she is fantastic. And this it is their best performance I've ever seen. And it sort of taps very effectively into that 1970s style of British horror. It's not very scary. But that's fine because it is funny and a bit sinister. And also, and there's another film on my list, really well uses a big old British country mansion. Like really uses it really well. And it's just a really interesting take on a very familiar story. I had I thought it was it was my surprise at the festival. I was expecting to have it quite low down on my ranking, but it's actually really high up because it is a generally really interesting film. Number two, no, no, not number two, number seven. And we get back to Bruce Lee here. So there was a thick trench of documentaries this year at Fright Fest. I saw maybe five or six of them. And the best of the bunch was one called Enter the Clones of Bruce Lee, which is about Bruce exploitation. And what that is, is basically the movement of films that came out of Bruce Lee's death. So Bruce Lee died about a month before Enter the Dragon came out. So right on the cusp of him having his biggest break, he died. And so there was this rush in Hong Kong cinema to find his replacement. And this film interviews all these replacements. It goes through all the different actors who took on the mantle of Bruce Lee. And it is funny and insightful, but also, crucially, has running through it a thick wedge of guilt. Like everyone is kind of guilty that they did this, that when Bruce Lee died, they all went off and were coaxed into making these films and that never got as close to what Bruce Lee was doing. But yeah, this, this is, I mean, I have hadn't seen a bad documentary in this festival. It's one of the strengths of this year's Fright Fest, but this is the one that stands out for me. Uh, my number six is, um, so I had a fantastic run on Saturday. My, the first three films I saw are all in my top six. And the last I saw of this bunch, but only just missing out my top five is a film called The Moor which is part of, let me just find the name of the scheme. Good podcasting again. First Blood. So Fright Fest run a First Blood program where four or five films a year are shown as part of this and they get funding from Fight Fest and they're low budget British, uh, well, UK and Irish horror, often from debuting or directors who haven't had uh, a big film yet and the more was the best much i've seen two of these the one i saw was haunted also live which is great it's really good but it's also very um ghost watchy like it it wears its influences on its sleeve whereas the more the more is this dark bleak mostly crime drama about the dad of a murdered, uh, the it's all set around the auction moors, and it follows the dad of a child who was murdered, and the child's friend as they go over the moors to try and find this child's body twenty five years later, and there's supernatural stuff in the mix, 
but it's just it was dark it had a weight to it and an impact and i had these drone shots and the the score would kind of come up with this noise when i went over these the more these drone shots and it was the scariest thing i saw at this festival was the more it was impressive and then i needed a film off because it was that dark and uh needed a moment and my number five couldn't be more different i mean there is some real life stuff in it because it is a film about familial abuse but it's cobweb now you might have seen cobweb cobweb is out in cinemas already uh, i had a terrific time of cobweb it was this year's ready or not or barbarian the big studio release that comes to fright fest and is just kind of what you want at that point in the time i saw this second on the saturday i had a fantastic time of it i think it's got some flaws i think if i watch it again outside of fright fest i'll probably like it less you could pull apart the threads on this film the cobwebs if you will um but for the most part i think cobweb is a great ride with oodles of style and just i i don't know why it's not being released slightly later in the year i don't know why it's not a late september release because this has uh october halloween vibes all over it it's wonderful pumpkins are a key part of it yeah so you might have seen cobweb if you haven't seek it out but i think it's kind of played through cinemas over here uh my number four and uh, for the longest time my top three were the were what they were and then my my third kind of came along on the sunday and upset the balance and my three of my top four i'd seen before the festival so this is good boy i <laughs> mean good boy is the well probably the most talked about film of the festival going into it because it is about a woman who starts dating a man who has a dog but the dog is a man in a dog costume and that's the film and it is dark and perverse and sleek and upsetting and kind of brilliant i think good boy is kind of brilliant but also kind of repulsive i think it's great i think it's great and again this is i was going to bring up the smaller screens they have these smaller screens and good boy and my second and first favorite film were all on much too small screens they should all have had much bigger screens to be seen by more people because they would have been fascinating to watch with large audiences uh and my number three, the best on the main screen for me was a film called Raging Grace, which is, let me find the name of the director, Paris Zakila's, um mostly not a horror. It's mostly the horror comes from the real world and it's following an undocumented Filipina immigrant and her daughter as, as she tries to survive and gain citizenship and she kind of moves into the clutches of a very strange our uh family that are very wealthy live in this old dilapidated mansion house and there's a lot of weird stuff there but most of the horror comes from the real world experience of being an undocumented uh migrant and raging grace is brilliant and impactful and yeah a testament to the festival is there. It's played at other festivals, though. It's kind of having a great festival run and wherever it goes, it's embraced by audiences. And if it weren't for my next two films, this would have been the standout film of the festival for me. My number two is Hostile Dimensions, which is Graham Hughes's new film. His third film is follow up to Death of a Vlogger. And thankfully, it's as brilliant as Death of a Vlogger. 
it's about these journalists investigating someone's disappearance and the presence of a door to seemingly nowhere that plays a key part of it. And it's, again, sort of a screen live found footage mockumentary film. And again, Graham is brilliant. Uh, I saw several films that were sort of interdimensional fantasies and horrors. And this is the best of the bunch by a considerable distance. And you would not know that it's probably made for about a thousand pounds or something ridiculously low budget because it just it has such confidence and it works around its own limitations beautifully. And if it weren't for my next film, this would be my film of the festival. Well, my ne- my film of the festival, the film I saw before the festival and then I queued up to get a ticket on the Saturday morning is River, which is from the director of Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes and is a repeat of that. It, this time it's set in a, a uh, rural hotel and the surrounding buildings and it's a group of people are stuck in a two-minute loop and it is beautiful and profound and funny and I, I love River and I chatted to someone from Third Window Films who are going to bring it on Blu-ray. So it'll be out on a physical release. And I'm so happy because River is the best thing I've seen at this year's Fright Fest. I saw it before I went in and then saw it again. And I thought it was great. I mean, there were several other films that I liked. Like there was a film called How to Kill Monsters, which is uh, British low budget, but endearingly so. There was the J-Horror Virus, which was another great documentary. There was Home Sweet Home Where Evil Lives, which was audacious in its uh, one-shot setup, uh, even if I thought some of the horror in the final was a bit less impactful than it could have been. But yeah, on the whole, it was a, it was a lineup that had its strengths. And while I think that it was a fright fest that kind of suffered slightly from not having that many big releases, because there weren't a great number of big releases this one, there was, if I compare it to last year, there was no Benson and Moorhead-like film. There's no Argento-like film. There was not a Barbarian or a Fool. I mean, we got The Dive, which is Fool but Underwater, but that's a separate point. There was no uh, Neil Marshall, but might be a positive. <laughs> Sorry, Neil, if you listen, but yeah. Um, so it felt like Fright Fest's lineup had its strengths, but... From my perspective, I think they need to cut the number of films they show. I think they need to cut it down by about half and get like 30 great films or 35 great films across two screens. That I think might be the best thing for it. And the one last point I'll make before I hand over to the chaps is that there were four retrospectives this year at the festival. We got The Conjuring, It Follows, Alligator, and The Exorcist. And I saw two of these, and I had a well of time going back to Alligator. It is a gloriously silly film uh, that's getting a big, shiny 4K release, I think, from 101 Films. I think that's who brought it. And the other one was The Exorcist, which I have been a bit sniffy about The Exorcist. And then I watched it, and it kind of fixed my issues with The Exorcist by watching it in a big screen with an audience and having Mark Commode there to introduce it and to give it a little talk at the end. And for me to go, well, actually, I misremember The Exorcist. It's not about the exorcism at all. It's about uh, Reagan's condition and I forget the name of the priest's journey to the exorcism itself. And uh, yeah, I must commend Vincent for stopping me from leaving early because I, I circled leaving early, but I didn't. I made it through. I, I'd watched two films that didn't gel with me of the three films I'd seen on the Monday. 
and then I saw The Exist and I was like, oh, this is this is a great way to end the festival. So yeah, my hat's off to Vincent for stopping me from doing something silly. Uh James, what you so you've watched some stuff. Both Vincent and James uh came for a day of the festival each, but they also watched stuff beforehand and around it. And James, what is your film of the festival that you've watched? Yes, yeah, so I attended on the Friday, and while I was down there, I watched two films, and I saw many excellent people. Unfortunately, Vincent was not one of those. Our paths did not cross due to differing days. But <laughs> I... Yeah, I've already cried myself out. Uh, um, but I did make up the numbers by covering quite a few films via screeners for, for various sites, and... Of what I saw, there was a couple which I was not a fan of, but I thought what I saw overall was an impressive collection of films. I mean, yes, there were no big name release, new releases like uh, like a something in the dirt last year or a uh, or the lair last year, um, but what I thought did get delivered was a great mix of you had talented filmmakers who were on your radar, courtesy of a fantastic film, fantastic introduction to him, and returning works by filmmakers who I was previously impressed with, and I'm now eager to see how their filmmaker filmographies develop. So among those, I was a fan of Chris Cronin's The Moor, which I thought was so atmospheric, it threatens to choke you with fear. Um, Alice Mayo McKay's Tea Blockers, which was an unapologetically queer cry of fury, I was also a fan of Junta Yamaguchi's River. That was a touching time loop film. Um, Graham Hughes' Hostile Dimensions, Parasakula's uh, Raging Grace, Villarbo's um, uh, Good Boy. I thought there was uh, plenty to like, but among what I saw, my favourite work was Where the Devil Roams from the Adams Family. And it was uh, quite a compelling work, which... Uh, was absolutely for me as i was sitting there just watching this film deliver gothic expressionism and gruesome visuals courtesy of musicians termed filmmakers who regularly work with their families i just realized that this must be what a rob zombie fan feels like uh but i was seriously impressed with that film and i previously loved hellbender and i quite liked um uh the Hatred, I believe that was the the cold revenge film I watched for theirs. Um, I have not seen The Deeper You Dig, but after the after Where the Devil Roams, I am definitely filling that blind spot. Um, and whatever they deliver next, I am absolutely there for. Now, Vincent, what what about you? What's your pick of the festival? Well, my pick of the festival is ultimately my regrets in not being there for the whole event and not seeing you, James. I, well, I, I did get to see Russell, which was, of course, wonderful. And there were a lot of other lovely people there. Um, but a bit of Rodders makes everything better. I, yeah. I, and, and Russell, you're welcome for uh, my uh, persuading you to stick around um, for The Exorcist. We'll, uh, we'll come back to that. I didn't see a great deal. I was only there for the Monday and I saw two films there, but I also saw a couple of screeners. Um, I also, much like my fellow potty people, in, loved The more. It was, you know, a whole bunch of which is yeah, what you want. I also enjoyed Home Sweet Home. 
um, so on the Monday, a very uh, strong single take um, uh, German horror, I thought. But the film I'm going to highlight is It Lives Inside. It Lives Inside is um, an atmospheric and visceral occult horror of the tensions between tradition and modernity, the immigrant experience and inescapable terror. It, what's interesting is that It Lives Inside is not unlike films like Ring and It Follows and Smile in that it involves a curse and you've got about you've got a limited amount of time in which to get out of that curse or get very dead but what makes it distinctive is it's about people from an Indian background and it's directed by Bishal Dutta who co-wrote with Ashish Mehta the protagonist um, played by Megan Suri is somebody who speaks different languages at home and at school her family are from India but they've emigrated to the United States and the film is properly atmospheric and genuinely terrifying. And I also think it's part of an interesting trend in films this year that have represented immigration. This is a topic that is you know, very hot topic and it needs to be talked about more. And I'm really glad to see that the topic is being put on screen in such diverse fare as horror films like It Lives Inside, Pixar films, Elemental, and possible um, award touters, Past Lives. There's a number of interesting films that are looking at immigration, and I think it's a, and I, and I applaud them for doing so. I look forward to more of them. Now, speaking of things to talk about more, um, like Russell, I got a further appreciation for The Exorcist as well, seeing it on an IMAX screen. I hadn't seen it properly projected in the cinema before, and while I always liked it, I think this was the first time I actually found it properly, like, gah, properly um, um, scary. Um, by the way, it's Father Karras is the priest um, that Thank we were you. trying to remember earlier. What kind of picture, Carol? A child. A child asking for help. What? I knew that you would jump to conclusions. You're telling me this now? Okay, that's just not possible. Stop, it's stop. what I tell you about. Just don't... Stop. Peter, why would you draw a picture like that? Peter! I really heard her! No, you did not! No! Now, as mentioned, uh, this was uh, now the Exorcist was shown at Frightfest for its 50th anniversary, and in, in, we have spoken about the Exorcist in the previous episode. But this leads us on quite nicely to this uh, month's feature, because a few weeks prior to Frightfest and about a month prior to the time of recording, the director of the Exorcist, William Friedkin, died at the age of 87. And we thought it would therefore be interesting to take a look back over the career of Hurricane Billy, as his friends called him, and see what and you know, and give our impressions about what we think of him. So, William Friedkin was born in 1935. He in Chicago. He wasn't much of an academic high flyer, and after finishing school at 16, he worked in the mailroom at WGN TV. While there, he started his directorial career, working on live TV shows and documentaries, which he directed at the age of 18. Bastard. Ah, sort of, you know, makes you feel woefully inadequate when you read that sort of thing. 
Um, but he directed such things as The People versus Paul Crump and Mayhem on a Sunday Afternoon. Now, those were the early 1960s. He moved to Hollywood in 1965 and directed such films as Good Times, The Birthday Party, The Night They Raided Minsky's and The Boys in the Band. And it's worth noting several of these films were based on plays, which is a, an interest that continued across Friedkin's career. Now, you might not have heard of those early films, but you likely are familiar with Friedkin's next couple of films. In 1971, Friedkin directed The French Connection, one of the essential films of the new Hollywood that would win five Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Director. An interesting anecdote about that, the day after the Oscars, Friedkin actually went to see a therapist, a psychiatrist, and said that he did not feel he deserved this Oscar. He didn't feel he'd created something that could be put um, on a similar level to Mozart's work um, or, or Beethoven's work. So, you know, we all get our um, imposter syndromes, I suppose. Despite that, Friedkin was never one to rest on his laurels. As next step, he adapted, oh, what was that called again? Ah, yes, William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist, the which uh, was received huge commercial success and indeed further Oscar nominations. And arguably that one-two punch between 1971 and 1973 was the highlight of Friedkin's career, as his later works such as Sorcerer, Deal of the Century, Rampage, Jade, and others met with mixed responses. But I think it's important to remember that Friedkin's work is undeniably important. He worked across multiple genres in his career, and but whatever genre he worked in, he had an, an experimental and a provocative filmmaking that would often push the medium forwards. If you find any list of greatest horror films, The Exorcist will be on there. Find any list of greatest crime films, and The French Connection will be on there. If you seek out films based on plays, you will find a very interesting collection. And if you look, want to see uncompromising films that are not afraid to provoke and unsettle, then you will find them in the, in the filmography of William Friedkin. Now, each of us have different histories with this director, and we've all picked a particular film to bring to your attention. Not The Exorcist, because we've spoken about that at some length. Russell, what's your history with Friedkin, and what film would you recommend to our lovely listeners? Um, I have seen some of his films. There's some blind spots in his career. Obviously, I've seen The French Connection. I've seen The Exorcist. And I've seen some of his other later works. Uh, and the one that I've chosen is the one of his that I first saw in the cinema of all of his films. It was Killer Joe. Um, so Killer Joe and there's a film called Bug sort of represented a bit of a comeback for the director. He had a uh, 90s into a noughties that that a series of films that just didn't quite uh land for viewers and critics at the time um and so he kind of returned to his theatrical roots for these two because bug is an intimate piece set in a single hotel room with michael shannon and i forget the name of the actor in it and then killer Ashley joe Judd. thank you ashley judd and then the Killer Joe is based on a play. The play, funnily enough, is by Tracy Letts. And so you'll probably most be familiar with Tracy Letts as Henry Ford II in Ford v. Ferrari. Ford v. Ferrari. He's popped up quite recently in a lot of um, studio uh, 
studio picks around the around Oscar season. I think he was nominated for something. What was he nominated for? Oh dear. Um, I'm not sure. He's been nominated for stuff. Maybe for Lady Bird. I think he plays Lady Bird's father in that as well. Anyway, so Killer Joe is my pick. It's from 2011. It is a southern fried gothic crime film that's sweaty, unrepentantly uh, disgusting and wonderful. It's uh, part of Matthew McConaughey's uh, McConaughey's. It was one of three or four films he made where it kind of he threw off the shackles of his rom-com status and was genuinely brilliant. And he is brilliant in this as a hit ma- a cop who moonlights as a hit man who is paid by a family to kill off a matriarch. Um, and his payment will be a night with the uh, youngest sibling of the group. And it the cast also includes Emil Hirsch, Juno, uh, Temple, Gina Gershon, and Thomas Hayden Church. And it is like a few films I've seen in the cinema. It leaves you feeling dirty and uh, a bit repulsed by what you've watched. There's something with a chicken drumstick that we won't get into. But yeah, the the sort of the last act dinner scene is wonderfully provocative. And it's sort of freaking returning to his roots uh with a small intimate story and just directing the shit out of it i mean yeah if you want to see why freaking is such a respected director go watch killer joe i mean obviously there's the exodus there's a french connection there's uh a few fascinating films in the 80s and 90s but yeah for me it's killer joe i picked i've seen others of his films around it and i want to watch more like i'm going to go off and watch cruising or to live and die in la or uh the guy <laughs> the guardian is uh interesting um that's his uh evil killer tree film <laughs> um, oh and sorcerer i've watched half of sorcerer and i didn't finish it to my shame he's also with sorcerer famously a simp fan of the simpsons and was overjoyed that the simpsons did a take on the source on sorcerer in mr plow there's a specific sequence where homer is driving across a bridge that is aping sorcerer um yeah so my pick is is killer joe james what have you picked which is your freaking film so to my shame, I've only seen I've seen very few for William Friedkin films. I'm a horror fan, of course. I've seen The Exorcist. Um, I have seen The Hunted, not in the optimal conditions because I was like 19 and I watched it at like 1 a.m. on BBC One, so I'd need to give that another look. And oh, Killer Joe was the other one I've seen. I remember as I. I had gotten into films and then I'd just seen people talking about that film and the aforementioned chicken scene and just thinking, oh God, this sounds something. I kind of need to see it. And I just fell in love with that film. Um, The fourth film I've seen is William Friedkin's Sorcerer. And this was released in 1977. It was negatively received upon its release. It was also a commercial failure because it was released in close proximity to a small film you might have heard of, Star Wars. I mean, rings a yeah, bell. Yeah, that might have hurt its box office. Who knows? Um, 
maybe if there were sorcerer action figures, maybe it would have done better. I don't know. Um, but I this film was not on my radar radar until it was about the 2010s when it was receiving a critical reevaluation, and Mark Kermode was just giving it massive praise and urging everyone to see it. Uh, so I just I saw an HMV one day and I thought, well, why not? It's why not? I'll give it a try. And I am so glad I did because it is a gripping masterpiece, I think. And this is the second ad adaptation of Georges Arnaud's. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher a lot of French names and titles here. So if you're French, then I'm eternally sorry. Um, so this is the second adaptation of Georges Arnaud's 1950 French novel, Le Salaire de la Pierre. Oh my God, I'm butchering this. And the first adaptation was The Wages of Fear from Henri Georges Clouseau. So it's very acclaimed. Um, so I suppose it's a case of why are you bothering to remake this really good film? Well, even though Freakin has insisted it's not a remake. Um, the basic plot is you've got four outcasts from different parts of the world. Each of them are hiding from their past in a South American village. And they all agree to drive across the jungle, taking a job which involves transporting gallons of dynamite that's so unstable, it is sweating nitroglycerin. And what unfolds is such a gripping thriller that just leaves viewers on edge throughout its two-hour runtime as it goes from one dangerous set piece to the next. And within it, you have this nail-biting sequence set across a rickety bridge, which is one of the most tense things I've ever seen put to film. I watched this with um, one of my best friends. It was just like, lads night in, so we're both um, cinephiles, so we just <laughs> used that to have a few beers and just plough through DVD and Blu-ray after DVD and Blu-ray, and this one was just such a standout in our night, and that Rickety Bridge sequence just left us in shocked silence over what we were seeing unfold. And that is also the sequence which is um, parodied in Mr. Plough episode of The Simpsons, which I never realised, but as soon as Russell said it, it's glass-shattering, mind-blown. I can't believe I didn't get that. But yeah, this is a phenomenal film from Freakin. If you haven't seen it, Please rectify that because chances are you probably will have seen the French Connection or The Exorcist. But I really recommend Sorcerer. Um, and Vincent, what is your um, what is your pick that it might be so good? It's like it's sorcery. <laughs> There's a lovely anecdote as you mentioned, um, James. Uh, Sorcerer got very much uh, championed by uh, Mark Commode, one of you know probably the, the the world's leading experts on Friedkin, and one of the running jokes on the Commode and Mayo film review program is that Simon Mayo has never seen The Exorcist, but he did see Sorcerer, and he proved it to Commode by describing the sequence on the bridge. At which point Commode says, "Simon, I love you more than words can say," and the gushing carried on for a bit, and Mayo's like, "Yeah." <laughs> Get weird now. <laughs> um, um, so it's always sorry, nice. Sorry, but it, he actually described the blowing up of the tree scene. Thank you. Yeah, he did. Quite right. 
Um, well, I was, look, I was looking back over my history with Friedkin, and actually the very first Friedkin film I saw was uh, Rules of Engagement, uh, which was a fairly minor um, military courtroom drama that came out in 2000. And I do remember reading the review of it. I think, yeah, yeah, I'll give this a go. I like the sound of it. But the review did say, this is from the guy who made The French Connection and The Exorcist. And I thought, all right, I should probably check those out too, which I subsequently did. I saw The French Connection on TV. I think I actually um, bought a DVD of The Exorcist before watching it, um, back when I used to do that sort of thing. And then over time, you know, I would I checked similarly with To Live and Die in L.A., which I looked at when I was um, doing my uh, Ph.D. on Michael Mann. And To Live and Die in L.A. is sometimes described mistakenly as a Michael Mann film, but it isn't. It's a William Friedkin film, Mann and Friedkin being, you know, good friends and uh, uh, collaborator well, and contemporaries. Although apparently over To Live and Die in L.A., um, there was actually actually um, a legal case but they stayed friends after it so there you go um and more recently i have also seen bug and killer joe as well as the csi episode crime scene investigation episodes that friedkin directed but none of those are the ones i'm going to talk about because the film i'm going to talk about came out in 1980 so three years after sorcerer and I've noticed there's a recurring element to what the films we're talking about because they're all sweaty. <laughs> and 1980s Cruising is also a sweaty film. It is sweaty, it is compelling, it is ambivalent, and it is disturbing. This is a, a film based on a novel that had been published some years earlier concerning a serial killer in the New York uh, gay scene. But interestingly, Friedkin didn't actually want to adapt it because by the time the novel had been optioned, in his words, the, the, uh, things had moved on and the that kind of underground environment wasn't, wasn't the place for the gay community um, in New York by that point. However, what the novel then did, what the um, novel that was then done with was adapted into something that was a, a, more of a subculture uh, what's happening is that there is a serial killer that's going on quite specifically in the underground leather bar gay community of new york and the film stars uh, al pacino as a, a new as a cop who is assigned by his superior paul Salvino to go undercover go undercover into the leather bar community um, seen as a potential victim to try and flush out the killer. And in doing so, in some respects, the film does what a, a number of uh, uh, kind of undercover thrillers do, where it's a matter of you have the cop, they go undercover, and their sense of identity starts to blur between their police identity and the place where they are. You can see it in plenty of other um, films that are similar, such as Donnie Brasco, Miami Vice, The Infiltrator. That's it's a it's a familiar trope of this um, subgenre. But what is but alongside this, as well as showing um, Pacino's character undergoing these sorts of um, you know, questionings of his own um, sense of identity, it also does I think a really nice job of presenting this subculture 
Now, I can never pretend I know anything or will ever know anything about um, the leather bar gay community of 1980s New York. Just not going to happen somehow. But I still got a this film managed to put across a sense of that um, subculture of that community. Um, I don't know if it's accurate, but it didn't come across as being in any way salacious or judgmental. Um, now, that's not to say the film wasn't without controversy. It did prompt some resistance at the time of its production from the New York gay community. Um, so, you know, fair enough. Uh, it's important, to, I think, to have those sorts of conversations say well look no we don't agree with this representation we think it needs to be protect we think we're going to protest against it it needs to be discussed um didn't stop the film being made it wasn't necessarily a particularly big success but looking at it now i think it's it comes across as very bold in its presentation of this subculture of um of, of a queer community um it ha it doesn't shy away from showing male intimacy um, but it doesn't present it male intimacy, um, homosexual um, relations in a way that makes you go sort of Whoa, or uh, or what? It's actually saying, yeah, look, it's two guys. They are, you know, they're kissing and having sex. It's it's all fine. You know, it's not. It doesn't need to be a big deal. But then when it gets disturbing because you're dealing with a serial killer, it gets properly disturbing. Um, and some parts of it are, I think, very effectively, and, and it manages to also be properly erotic. You know, this is about, you know, kind of an erotic community. And in that respect, it works as well. Um, stylistically, at times, it actually gets quite disorientating, which is entirely appropriate as our protagonist is going into this unfamiliar world. Um, so it, I think it's a very effective thriller. It does have some horror elements as well, I think. There were points when I was like, whoa, what was that? That was not perhaps not dissimilar to certain moments in The Exorcist when it's like something weird is happening here and it's making you feel uncomfortable. And so it does a good job, I think, of creating something we do not usually see. Therefore, that's my recommendation, 1980s cruising. Um, yeah, which I yeah, think is definitely worth a look, as indeed are Killer Joe and Sorcerer. That would be a fun triple bill, I think. It's only a sweaty one. Maybe not but one for this evening. Perhaps not. <laughs> but as well as sweaty, before we leave Friedkin, I thought it might be interesting to get a bit rotten. Here we go. Here we go, indeed. So because what we're going to do now is play the Rotten Tomatoes game. For those of you unfamiliar with this, um, Rotten Tomatoes is a site that uh, compiles uh, reviews um, of films TV shows as well, I think. And the way and the way it works is if a film receives a certain number of three out of five or six out of ten reviews, it is classed as that's positive. And if any film gets 60% or over reviews like that, positive reviews, it is classed as being fresh. It's not a particularly accurate indicator of movie quality, uh, but it is quite fun to play around with. As always, full credit to the sequelizers who introduced this game, and I have shamelessly ripped it off from them. So, my fellow potty people, what we'll do is consider the Rotten Tomatoes scores for Sorcerer, Cruising, and Killer Joe, going in that order, chronological. So starting with Sorcerer from 1977, James, what do you think is the Rotten Tomatoes score? For sorcerer. 
Oh, this is a tough one because it it was negatively received upon release, but there was the reappraisal. It went back in cinemas, and obviously you can upload reviews um, past the film's release date. So it's just how many critics would have done that. Um, okay, take a punt. Seventy-two percent. All right then. So James is saying seventy-two percent. Russell, what do you think for Sorcerer? I think James in a relatively good ballpark. I think it's now fairly highly held, and I would say that reviews of the last thirty years have kind of pushed it to being like. Let's go seventy six percent. I'm going to go seventy six percent. I still think there's going to be a quarter of critics it doesn't work for, but I think most it will work for. Fair enough. Okay, so moving on then to cruising from nineteen eighty. Start with Russell this time. What would you expect to be the Rotten Tomatoes score for cruising? Mm, So on the one hand, I think, again, the critical praise will have helped it to be boosted up. On the other hand, the comment that it was met with hostility by the community that it was representing probably hasn't gone away. I would say this is probably one of the more contentious freakins so let's go with 71%. 71%. Okay. And James, what do you reckon for cruising? Um, Yeah, it's that element of it's contentious with the community it's representing that I think would prevent it from getting a Sorcerer-style reappraisal, or at least as highly as that. Um, I'm going to go for 64%. Okie dokie. Right then. And then, coming rather more up to date, Killer Joe from 2011. James, what do you think is the Rotten Tomatoes score for Killer Joe? Right, I seem to remember this being pretty positively received when it came out. Um, I do remember quite a few 6 out of 10 three-star reviews also, um, which would count as towards the fresh rating, to be fair. Um... 80%. So James says 80. Okay. Russell. Uh yeah, I think this is 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 a film that was praised on a reason. I don't think it was that much of a box office hit, but I know that McConaughey's performance alone got it a wealth of praise. And uh 85%. I'm gonna go high, 85%. All right, then. Let's uh, just total things up. Right. Okie dokie. Well, we, uh, as it's, uh, you know, best of best of three, unsurprisingly, there's a, there's a clear winner here. Uh, so to recap, um, Sorcerer from 1977, James said 72% and Russell said 76%. Russell was closer because Ooh. the actual score is 81%. Sorcerer um, was uh, very well received. Mark Um, Comedy has done his his work well. Indeed he has. Next up, we have Cruising from 1980. James said 64%. Russell said 71%. James is closer because the actual score is 50%. Oh. Oh. Which is... Harsh, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but as you say, it is a contentious film, and I could understand that a maybe a num- fair number of critics have not gone back to it, mm. um, and indeed those who maybe those who have said mm, no, don't like what this is doing. But there we go, thirty um, percent for cruising, and James close from that one. And then last but not least, we have Killer Joe from twenty eleven. James said eighty percent. Russell said eighty five percent. James is spot on because Whoa. the score for Killer Joe is 80%. Yeah, so there we ah. go. Killer Joe, pretty well received overall. Yeah. Not yeah, bad. Yeah, so there we have it. It's. Uh, I think th- these prove a nice indicator of the, the range of, a pr- of responses to Friedkin's work. I'm sure if one were to look through the rest um, of his films on Ron Tomatoes, then you'd find a range of interesting choices. Excuse me. Could I ask you about these? What about them? What are they for? Well, a light blue hank in your left back pocket means you want a blowjob. Right pocket means you give one. The green one left side says you're a hustler, right side you're a buyer. The yellow one left side means you give golden shower, right side you receive. The red one oh, means you see anything you want? Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go home and think about it. I'm sure you'll make the right choice. Well, after all that fun, is it maybe time for some rubbish? I don't know. Can we find rubbish this time, James? Is there a rubbish film we can hoik out from the archive to meet, to match William Friedkin's body of work? Oh, I found some rubbish. I've dived into the depths of the waste bins and I have found some rubbish. So this is a 2017 film called Wish Upon from director John R. Leonetti. Now, John R. Leonetti is, there's, okay, there's something interesting with him because as a cinematographer, his work seems to be well-praised. He's delivered, he's worked on films such as The Conjuring, Insidious, and Paul W.S. Anderson's original Mortal Kombat. As a director, there's less, um, nice things to say because his directorial credits include Annabelle, Wolves at the Door, which is a tasteless take on the Sharon Tate murders and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. So this was at the time his latest film. It sees a teenager called Claire, played by Joey King, who's grieving over her dead mother. And then one day she discovers a wishing box which she obviously uses to make wishes, although the cost for them involves people, I don't want to say they're close to her, some of them are kind of close to her. Anyway, they're killed in freak accidents. And this is a film which wants to be a blend of The Monkey's Paw and Final Destination, but it's too inept to do that. And the issues do come down, do begin at the roots with Barbara Marshall's screenplay, who interesting fact her credits include a Lifetime film which adapts the Joseph Fritzl story that from reviews is handled as sensitively as you'd expect it to not be so yeah Um, but as for Wish Upon I'm going to look that up one second, you keep talking, I want to look up this film it's called The Girl in the Basement okay Judd Hirsch is the Joseph Ritzel insert. Okay. 
And so this film, this is a film Wish Upon, spends most of its runtime on teenage melodrama. Um, the, the biggest issue she has outside of her dead mum is being embarrassed by a father, played by Ryan Philippi, who spends his spare time going dumpster diving for stuff which he can sell for hoping to find some hidden treasures. So one of the... You have infinite wishes to do anything you want, and one of her wishes is that her dad was cool. And this is emphasised by having Ryan Philippi start playing the saxophone, to which Claire and his friends are watching, and one of her friends says that he is... This is a genuine quote from the film. He is totes hot sauce like sriracha hot. It's, yeah, the kind of writing for a 17-year-old, which is obviously written by a 50-year-old man. Um, there might be one scenario where you think, hang on, could an AI write that better? What a terrifying prospect. Uh, now, to be fair, there are funny moments in it, but they're unintentional. At the most, this is just embarrassing stuff. It even tries to tack on a dark ending to the film but the way it's handled is oh it made me laugh out loud it was just ridiculous um uh, it'll have you wishing for a better film um yeah so that was wish upon when you say (laughs) yeah when you say a better film it's weird looking at the cast here by joey king and ryan felipe it just makes me think of hang on a minute So you've got Ryan Felipe playing a dad. Isn't that a bit like Zac Efron playing a dad in the recent version of Firestarter? But I fear this may be worse. Um, You buried something else about Barbara Marshall. She also wrote a film called The Bad Seed, and The Bad Seed is directed by none none of them Rob Lowe. Wait, what? There's a film called The Bad Seed directed by Rob Lowe, starring Rob Lowe and McKenna Grace, which is a widower suspects that his seemingly perfect adolescent daughter is a heartless killer. And there's a sequel that follows the daughter to high school. You buried the lead there. The Bad Seed is the bad film that we should talk about. Oh, maybe another time. Well, you know what? It's clear how much I got to talk about Wish Upon, that we're talking about The Bad Seed and um, Girl in the Basement instead. Um, Yeah, Wish Upon exists. Um, Watch it, don't watch it. Who cares? There's also a film she wrote called Soccer Mum Madam, which is after a bitter breakup leaves her and her young children without any support. Anna goes to work for her cousin at a massage parlor known for, in quotation marks, happy endings. As soon as she learns the ropes, Anna branches out on her own. What? Huh. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get obsessed with Barbara Marshall's career i think but yes no wish upon sounds like something i don't wish upon my worst enemies yeah i see i always feel that expression is badly used if you think something is horrible surely you do wish it on your worst enemies because <laughs> if they're not because if you don't then is there really that much enmity and if there isn't that much enmity then good for you that makes you a very good forgiving person you know the number on the box that we couldn't figure out well i did It's a military ID number belonging to an airman by the name of Arthur Sands. That's him. That's him six months later. Oh my God. After his suicide, his wife was institutionalized. She swore a music box had destroyed her family. In the last five years or so, the box resurfaced again in Cleveland. 
with a man named Lawrence Hart. He wins the lottery, marries his high school sweetheart, and has two daughters. The perfect life. Until people around him start dying off. Let's hoik ourselves out of the trash and recommend something old, something new, and a snaff. I'm feeling so, thoroughly hoiked. Excellent. Let's start with something old, which is James. No, it's you. you. Is it me? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know I am something old, but that's literally you are going to recommend something old. Well, James, in fact, brought up what I'm going to recommend whilst I'm at Wish Upon. I'm going to re oh. recommend the Final Destination films because I noticed that they had popped up on Amazon Prime. Woo. And they are some of the most enjoyable sort of slasher films that have come out in recent years. They are, if you don't know the sort of a fun destination, it's basically that a group of people will survive um, what should be a devastating uh, and deadly accident, only for death to then stalk them and kill them off in elaborate mousetrap style accidents. And they are quite ridiculous films, very enjoyable, very much of their time. And the fifth one has one of my favorite end twists of a film I've seen. It has a fantastic end twist, links back into Fright Fest. I believe that Final Destination 5 premiered at Fright Fest. So again, it links Wish Upon and uh, Fright Fest. I'm not sure we can link it to Freakin. But probably well, if link Mark it. Commode was here, well, A, we'd be, you know, being like, oh, my God, how do we get him on our show? But he says you can link everything to The Exorcist somehow. OK, I guess that like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, really. Yeah, there's yeah. probably a link in there. And it kind of links to talk to me that they're both sort of about teen and uh, ad young adults kind of coming into contact with something supernatural and having a bad time because of it. Uh in this case, it's Jeff. Yeah, these are some of the most enjoyable films you can watch, and they're perfect as we creep slowly towards Halloween. You can whack these films on and have the best time with them. I particularly like uh, number five, but number two, of course, has the lorry with the um, logs on it that has now become... <laughs> one of the great memes of the horror community and also something to be afraid of. The first one has some fantastic deaths and it builds up its lore. Ignore the fourth one. The fourth one is the NASCAR one. It's not so great, but one, two, three, and five are all tons of fun. And I kind of cheat by you know, recommending you four films to watch, but you know what? We want to recommend lots of stuff for you to watch. So my, my something old is Final Destination, which might be one of my favorite franchises. It's certainly the most consistently enjoyable franchise I can think of to the top of my head. Yeah, Final Destination is fantastic. A cup either last Halloween or the Halloween before, um, in the month of in, in October, I did watch the whole um, Final Destination series in fairly quick succession, first time viewings for most of them. Um, watching them in quick succession, it, it does get, I won't say repetitive, but it, you do become very um, comparing. It's like, well, that was not as good as what I saw last time. And this one, well, that's a bit more creative. And then you start to question your own sort of, like, mm -hmm. how sick am I that I'm mainly laughing at these? There is I one. I think you're yeah, meant to laugh at them. I know, I know. Yeah. There is always one uh, particular death. I think it's in the final one, in the fifth film, where it just has me. Burst out laughing. Um, 
gymnastics, eh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, there's ones like that. There's one with a um, bit of glass that's very brutal. <laughs> there Ooh. is um, the tanning bed one's quite the brutal. tanning bed one is horrid. <laughs> I like that mm. one a lot. And like they go from like, the first one, the deaths are kind of not grounded because you know it's a film about death literally stalking people and killing them off. But they are closer to looking, feeling like suicides, except for the one with the bus one. The bus one's great. And um, <laughs> then we kind of, the more they progress, the more they become less and less like, you know, sort of suicides and more into being like, how can we like, like give you all these uh, MacGuffins, all these like uh, red herrings throughout a sequence and then surprise you of how someone's going to die. Yeah. Mm. I love these films. Hey, uh, I... Russell, that uh, bookcase behind you, it, it's not teetering, is it? Oh, it wouldn't be that that kills me, don't worry. <laughs> uh, I remember watching going through the Final Destination films um, during the first lockdown in 2020. Mm-hmm. And ama- amazing how short they all are. But also, I just remember how the fourth film, my copy of the DVD came with 3D glasses and a 3D version of the film. And I got a headache that I couldn't even make it 20 minutes in that I had to restart the film of the 2D version. Um, Yeah. um, Also, it's really weird how that film has someone, spoiler alert, getting their insides sucked out of their arsehole. And it's the worst film of the franchise. We've all been there. We've all we've all been there. (laughs) Yeah. 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 We've all seen encountered something so bad it made our, you know, internal organs prolapse. (laughs) <laughs> right let's go for something new let's move away from prolapsing um organs organs maybe replication of organs well i don't think there's anything about prolapsing organs in this one but um my something new um you all remember of back in july of the fantastic double bill that everyone was talking about barbenheimer we even talked about it on this show and since then, it's broken box office records. It's gotten so much critical acclaim. And it's getting a parody film from Full Moon Features. Yep, it's li- literally called Barbenheimer, and it's literally trying to mash up the two films into one parody. And here's a fun fact. It's from the studio behind films such as the Puppet Master series, Mandroid, and Evil Bong. So maybe that will come back in my reviewing rubbish sometime. Who knows? Uh, let's not prejudge. But on that same day Barbenheimer was released, there was another film released which was unfortunately overshadowed. And that is my pick, Day Clone Tyrone. And this is the feature debut from Joel Taylor. And this is a film best experienced knowing as little as possible. So all I'm going to share about the plot is how it follows a drug dealer, a pimp and a sex worker who discover a nefarious conspiracy a nefarious conspiracy that's linked to the neighbourhood they call home. And what you have is an excellent trio of performances from John Boyega, Jamie Foxx and Tiona Paris. And there is so much laughs that comes from their interplay as they go deeper down the rabbit hole of this intriguing mystery, which offers an absolutely biting look at America and how it treats black citizens. And it especially reminds me of Boots Riley's phenomenal film from a few years ago, Sorry to Bother You, in the way it delivers social commentary through fantastical means that must be seen to believe to be believed. And it's really unfortunate that this feels it's been very little seen because it came out on the same day as something 
one of the most massive events of the year. And it already fought the uphill battle of being a Netflix original. So it was already struggling for people to watch it under that awful algorithm, which prioritizes shows that are going to get cancelled and comedy specials from transphobes. Oh, well. Um, but yeah, my something new is They Clone Tyrone. Please seek it. It's such a great work. It is on my list to watch. It is It is on my list to watch. I Same was going to watch it during the day when I was working, but I thought that was disrespectful. So I'll watch it um, one evening. But yeah. And for our something that's not a film, Vincent, what do you have for us, kind sir? What I have is something else that um, needs to be seen on a streaming service. The fairly recently um, released Paramount Plus, which I have to say, so far, I've been very impressed with. Not least because on Paramount Plus is found all, and I do mean all, of Star Trek. I love Star Trek. Um, it is of all, as somebody who consumes a great many franchises from Star Wars to Marvel to DC to Final Destination, if I could only have one franchise to take with me to a desert island, it would be Star Trek. And let's face it, that's probably the biggest. And what I'm specifically going to recommend here is Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which launched uh, in 2022 and its second season was out this year and all currently available on Paramount+. Plus. Now, it's worth noting that you know, Star Trek started way, way back in 1966. Um, the original series only ran for three, uh, series ran for three seasons. And then there were six movies featuring the original cast between 1979 and 1991. But then that was the busiest period because between 1987 and 2004, there were four different Star Trek series, Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, and Enterprise. And then there became space, not the final frontier, but empty cinemas following the release of Star Trek Nemesis. And not until 2009 did we get more, cinema, more Star Trek purely in the cinema then with what became known as the Kelvinverse. Now, it's fair to say, I think, that Star Trek has floundered in recent years with the Kelvinverse movies, as well as Star Trek Discovery in 2017 and um, Star Trek Picard. And the, what was troublesome about these is that Star Trek was often very much about optimism. It was about looking towards a bright, um, positive future. And in the 21st century, this would this seems desperately naive. It feels that, you know, we are so consumed these days with dystopias that if you try to do something like the original Star Trek, it's not going to work. And as a result, when Star Trek was being relaunched with the um, Abrams movies, as well as the, recent, the series Discovery and Picard, it was trying to be edgy. It was trying to be new. It's like, hey, we're doing Star Trek, but it's not like you know it. We're going to be all sort of dark and like it's cruel and we're going to like kill people off very regularly. It's, you know, it's like Star Trek through the lens of Game of Thrones. And for some people that probably worked. But as a Trekker, for me, it was mm, so-so. But Strange New Worlds is a series that I think has struck the right balance between homage and innovation. It's not as in-your-face stylistically as Discovery. 
nor is it as self-aware and referential as Picard. What Strange New Worlds has done is it provides the classic Star Trek approach of a somewhat dysfunctional family exploring space and along the way um, having elements of kind of moralizing and doing some, you know, discussion and some probing into contemporary issues. But it's doing this with the production values of modern, in inverted commas, quality and in television and indeed streaming. So everything, the funny thing about Strange New Worlds is it is set within the Star Trek uh, timeline earlier than the events of the original series, but all the technology looks so much more advanced. But hey, that's uh, it, that's a uh, thing about prequels that come uh, long after the original. It stars um, Anson Mount as Captain Christopher Pike, as well as Ethan Peck as Spock, Christina Chong as uh, Lan Noonien Singh, Melissa Navia as Erica Ortegas, Rebecca Romijn as Una Chin Riley, Jess Bush as Nurse Christine Chapel, Celia Rose Gooding as Neota Uhura, Babs uh, Olu Sanmokun as Dr. Mbenga. And what's really nice about that is these are several of these are characters who have appeared in Star Trek previously um, and now are being played by, in fact, where you've got Chris Pike. And Spock and Uhura are being played by like now the, by the third actor to play these roles. And so Star Trek Strange New Worlds, despite going to Strange New Worlds, also offers, I think, a nice element of familiarity. So if you like Star Trek, then I think Strange New Worlds is definitely something for track for trackers to check out. However, I also think it works as something nice for non-fans if you've heard about star trek and you thought eh, well maybe it's just doesn't seem like me it seems a bit you know old bit hokey um how much do i need to know going in i think strange new worlds can work for that audience as well so yeah that's my recommendation star trek strange new worlds the second season of which finished on a cliffhanger ah! i've got to wait a whole year until i find out what happens next <sighs> Star Trek is one of those franchises which I feel I'd really like if I delved into it, but I've I've only touched the surface on it. I've watched um, the Kelvinverse films. I've watched a couple of the um, original series films. I, I have fond memories of watching the whale one back in um, after I finished college. Um, and outside of that, it's been an odd episode here and there, but nothing that I can really say I'm deep into the fandom of but mm, if you say that's welcoming for newbies then maybe it's worth a shot really hard not to shout khan right now but i shall <laughs> resist uh the yeah i've watched some of the films i have definitely watched more of next generation than any of the other series like it was it was on bbc two maybe mm -hmm. when i was growing yeah. up so i'll have Before seen moving over to sky that and I watched the first two seasons of Lower Decks. I had a lot of fun with that. That's the animated series on Amazon Prime. Uh, the sort of Rick, a Rick and Mortification of certain properties, um, which is slightly uh, iffy now that the creator of Rick and Morty is a... Con I don't know if he's confirmed, but it is a piece of shit. Um, yeah, uh, please don't sue me. Um yeah, so I, I at some point should get more into Star Trek. I should definitely complete all the films. I haven't seen all the films. I've 
I do love Patrick Stewart though, so that's always been my draw is, is Patrick Stewart. And I'm told the Picard series three is great. I'm told that series one and two is not so great, but series three is great. So interestingly, yeah. yeah, season three of Picard, I think, manages to do what Strange New Worlds has done as well. Get the balance right between yes, we are doing Star Trek, but we are doing Star Trek in that works for today's audience. Okay. Who that? Why we gotta do this? Ain't no way. Damn dope. It ain't no way. Damn. Ain't no way. You sending ghosts to a pimp? Ain't no way. You got five seconds. How this be? It's gotta be a logical explanation to this. Man, three of them will bust your shit open. And open the damn door. Well, there you have it, listeners. We've given you uh, exciting news about A24 sequels. We've given you a whole festival of films and uh, about a dozen of films for you to go off and find out. We've given you a great author's body of work and some of his films to seek out. We've given you a horror film that uh, is uh, wishful thinking if it's going to scare you at all. And then we've given you a film franchise a new release and a whole heap of TV and films and sci-fi to go off and find out on Paramount Plus. So, I mean, what more could you ask for as hopefully things cool down, the nights draw in and we can all spend more time with our beloved TVs and laptops and stuff. But before we go, we need to tell people where we are. So James, if I wanted to go out to you, grab you by your lapels and say which is the freaking that the Simpsons take the the parody in Mr. Plough, where would I find you to ask you this important question? Well, firstly, I would say, did you not listen to the episode where we discussed this twice? <laughs> but if you still want to know where I am, take your hands off my lapels, and then you can follow me on whatever social medias I'm on at Rodders J04, that's spelled with two Ds. My reviews and articles can be found at thereviewingrodders.co.uk. And I do regular reviews for Nerdly at nerdly.co.uk. So come check it out. Now, Vincent, if I wanted to find you and question where about the Star Trek franchise, where could I where could I seek you to find the answers to these questions that I am butchering the questioning of. You can find me by fixing on the first star to the left and straight on until morning, which is to say, uh, Dr. Gain, that's D-R-G-A-I-N-E, on Instagram, X, Letterboxd, Threads, and now, thanks to the lovely James, also Blue Sky. That's where I post links um, links to my various reviews and I've recently uh, published on the Geek Show a preview of the upcoming um, film festival Grimfest so you know check that out and maybe see you at Grimfest and I also post um, my you know quick snippet reviews on there as well. Russell what coordinates should I enter into my Navic computer in order to find you? Well whatever means of transportation you take wherever your road journeys you can find me at russ loves movies i'm on twitter it's not called x it's called twitter twitter instagram letterboxd 
Freds and Blue Sky. I joined Blue Sky the other day as well. I haven't done anything on it yet. I probably should. I should give it a feel. But yeah, I'm on there. I'm also, um, my other podcast stream is the Not Just For Kids podcast. We are finishing our Star Wars summer. Vincent is our latest guest. He had the joy of The Last Jedi and the um, terror of Rise of Skywalker. (laughs) Ouch. And I've got uh, one more episode of that, which is going to be talking about fans of Star Wars, which it was a it's a fascinating chat. I really enjoyed it, both the positives and the negatives of the fandom of the series. Uh, you can find my writing on various places, and I'm a senior contributor at Moving Pictures Film Club, where I reviewed about seven or eight films for Fright Fest. And maybe by the time this comes out, I would have done a Fright Fest special for them. That remains to be seen. But yeah, you can find me there and I'll be at the London Film Festival for a couple of films that I'm sure I'll review some of. The most horror one of that is uh, Late Night with the Devil, which looks like oodles of fun. But yeah, until next time, we are the Potty People and we hope you watch all the films, all the TV shows. And I hope that the Strikers win. So yeah, until make it then, so. make it so. Oh, yeah.